Hey, what's happening, everybody? This is Lee, and welcome back to the Honor of Kings podcast. Today we are in episode six of our Identifying the False Prophet series, and uh, as we said in the last episode, that um, it wasn't going to be a lot of scripture; it was going to be a lot of quotes and um, you know current event items and stuff like that. Today is going to be scripture palooza. We're going to have a lot of it, and um, I want to apologize in advance. You know, I've, I've told you before that this, what I'm doing here isn't a teaching. I'm taking my study and sharing it with you so that you can maybe, you know, be inspired to go do your own studies. Use some of these things that I'm showing you and you can go in and, and look it up for yourself and um, just to get you to dig into your Bible and so forth. So this is my study. I do include some notes in here that I, I'll read from just so I can try to stay on track and uh, not lose my train of thought as this thing's recording. But for the most part, this is my study and how I study. And today it's going to be, we're going to get into a subject and in, into a string of verses. And then we're going to be off ramping into other books of the Bible and other books of the Bible and other books of the Bible all within just one verse type of stuff. Um, so it may be a little hard to follow. I just encourage you that um, if you're really interested in this stuff, you know, listen to this a couple times, have a note pad and paper out or whatever you have to do because um, I'm going to do everything I can to slow down a little bit and just make sure that I'm presenting it in a way that you, that it's, you can follow it. Um but it, it might be a little challenging, but bear with it because this uh, this study is really important. Um, this this particular one, you know, this is this is the one. So if you listen to no, none of the other episodes, this one and this will probably be a two parts of this one and the one that goes with it, right? So with that, let's have a uh, word of prayer and then we will get into the study. Uh, today's subject is it forces a mark. So we're going to discuss the mark of the beast. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you humbly and we ask for your presence. We ask for your guidance, your leading and your teaching, Father. Today's subject is going to be very, very touchy and, and hard for some people to deal with. Um, we have been sold a bill of goods in this culture and in this world of certain things. And for those of us that aren't scripture, scripturally based, that, that aren't in our Bibles every day, some of these things are um, hard to understand maybe. But we just need you, Father, to guide this study that everyone that is listening hears the things that you need them to hear and that I say the things that you want me to say. Um, this is all about you. This is for your glory. This is for us to be watchmen on your wall, Father, that we can call out the lies, call out the deceptions, and gather your people together. So we just we ask for your your presence and your participation in this today, that our hearts will be open, that we will accept the things that are being said that, that you have to say, and that we put aside the baggage of this world that we have, these preconceived notions, these teachings that we've had for years, decades, what have you, depending on who's listening. And, um, you know, these things have, have soaked into us and they have taken us away from your word. They have given us a foul version of your word that um, some people hold as absolute truth today. And when you actually start reading these prophecies, you understand that these truths are not 
uh, or the, the truths that they're holding are not truths at all. They're Jesuit lies and conspiracies based in satanic and demonic activity. And so protect us, Father. Give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the open hearts to accept. In the mighty and holy name of Jesus, amen. <clears throat> so, like I said, we are in bullet point eight. This beast forces a mark, right? So we're going to start in Revelation 13, 16. And scripture says, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. So first of all, what is a mark? When we look in our Strong's Concordance, in the Greek 5480, chera, cheragma, I think, I have no idea exactly how to pronounce that, cheragma or cheragma, um, a stamp as in a badge of servitude. Okay, so it's a stamp as in a badge of servitude. So this isn't referring to a stamp like that has ink on it boom per se what this is saying it's kind of like you will know them by their fruit type of thing so who you're serving is kind of the mark you know which which side are you on you could be in the middle of a war between the united states and russia a battle between the united states and russia and you might not have a russian uniform on but you're on their side of the line shooting at Americans, that pretty much says that you, without markings, without anything, but by your actions, you're with them. You know, you're serving them, right? So that's kind of what's going on here with a stamp as a badge of servitude. So when we think of this servitude thing, immediately, at least for me, I go to Joshua, uh, one of the most famous verses probably in the Bible, but Joshua 24:15, and Scripture says. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So his actions and his, the things that he's doing is going to show that he is serving our Lord, our God. Um... Now, we'd already shown in Daniel 2, the statue, how the attributes of, um, how the statue in Daniel 2, Daniel 2 show the attributes of the little horn power, how those religious ideas from each of the different empires crept into the final product, right? Um, so the, it, this mentions the god of the Amorites, that's Amaru, and then there's another one called Anlil. Oh, I'm sorry, Amaru is also called Anlil, but there's another one, he's called Anki. So, um, Anki and Anlil are viewed in the esoteric as Satan and our God, or the father of Jesus, that God. Um, in their accounts, Anki, or Satan, is the good one. Um, he's the one that was trying to give us freedom from the oppressive laws and rules of, of our father. Now, Enki is also found in the Gilgamesh tale, and uh, there he is called Enkidu, um, and he is the giant's partner in crime. You know, of course, Gilgamesh in this, in this tale is a giant. Um, we've already discussed that Gilgamesh is Nimrod. Now, Nimrod did not live before the flood, 
but did live in the uh, days of Noah, as Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be of the coming of the Son of Man, about his second coming. It's going to be like the days of Noah. Um, now, obviously, Noah lived before the flood and after the flood, right? So he has that, that time frame. But Nimrod was inspired by the pre-flood mystery religions anyhow. And so... The esoteric belief, the Freemasons, Rosicrucians, you know, the Sir Francis Bacons and all this stuff, they have a a legend, a story, a tale, and it, it might very well be true because somehow those religions, as Joshua is saying, um, the religions that the father served on the other side of the flood, if everybody was wiped out, how did that religion end up back over on this side of the flood? when population was being, you know, when the people was being uh, repopulated, when the earth was being repopulated, how did that religion get back over here? And so in their version of it, there are two pillars. One was made of stone, one was made of copper. And it had, one was to survive fire, one was to uh, survive water. And these two pillars had the mystery religions on it, and that was discovered by Nimrod. Um, and then he was inspired by this and brought this religion back um, into the, the earth, right? Um, now, the argument can be made that all of this turmoil and everything that went wrong before the flood was actually a work of the fallen watcher angels. They were the ones mating with human women. They were the ones causing all this havoc and pandemonium. Bible doesn't tell us that on our side of the flood that they came down and started interacting with us again. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. The Apocrypha will certainly say they did. But one way or another, that religion from before the flood ends up on this side of the flood. Nimrod resurrects that, so to speak. Um so with the mark enforced and accepted by believers today, they will be following, by following this Roman system, you will serve Anki, a.k.a. Nimrod, a.k.a. Satan, the gods from the other side of the flood. Um, so this is going to be about worship. And more specifically, as we'll see sh uh, shortly here, that it's not just worship, but how and when you worship is what this mark is going to be about, Right. So for the next thing we're going to do is we're going to look at what is the Roman system, what does the papacy and the Roman church say is their mark? See, they have a mark. So let's, let's see what they have to say. This is from the Catholic Record, September 1st, 1923. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact right? So their mark involves the Sabbath. And transference of the Sabbath means they move the day which God tell, told us to remember and keep holy, the fourth commandment, the seventh day they have moved it. Now, of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act, and the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. This is uh, C.F. Thomas, Chancellor of Cardinal Gibbons, October 28, 1895. Um, notice they say it's a mark 
of her ecclesiastical power and authority. <clears throat> Priest Brady, in an address reported in Elizabeth, New Jersey News, March 18, 1903, it is well to remind the Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, and all other Christians that the Bible does not support them anywhere in their observance of Sunday. Sunday is an institution of the Roman Catholic Church, and those who observe the day observe a commandment of the Catholic Church. All right, let's look at our Sunday visitor, Catholic publication from February 5th, 1950, Protestants. Except Sunday rather than Saturday as the day for public worship after the Catholic Church made the change. But the Protestant mind does not seem to realize that in, in observing Sunday, they are accepting the authority of the spokesman for the church, the Pope. <clears throat> Next, we have Reverend Stephen Keenan, A Doctrinal Catechism, New York, 1857, page 174. Question, have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals of precept? Answer, had she not such power, she could not have done that in which all modern religious, uh, religionists agree with her. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day a change for which there is no scriptural authority. <clears throat> Let's see here. Um, the Catholic Encyclopedia Commandments of God, 1908. The church, on the other hand, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath or seventh day of the week to the first, made the third commandment refer to Sunday, um, as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's day. Oh, the third commandment. Whoops. Uh-oh, wait a minute. Have I made a mistake? Because I've been saying the fourth commandment all this time. Uh, am I screwing something up here? No. Um, because it tells us scripture, scripture tells us that the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the papacy, will think to change times and laws. The Sabbath is a time and a law, which they're already saying they changed that. But something else they changed. If you look in their catechism, the second commandment. Second commandment's a law. And, and um, they went ahead and ditched that one because of the worshiping of idols thing. Because obviously you can't go into a Catholic church without seeing statues and paintings and all this stuff of all these different saints and martyrs and, and whoever else that you're going to see in there. And some of them have dead toes and fingernails and locks of hair and stuff for these people who have been dead for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years or whatever. Um, so they removed the second commandment from their catechism. And so that, and then they took the 10th commandment and split it in two. So that's how in this quote, when he's saying, um, made the third commandment refer to Sunday. Well, he, that's what happens. You take the second one out, number four moves up into number three's place, right? And then they go to number 10, split it in two. You still have 10 commandments and they're able to just completely um, trample all over God's word and God's law. Um, <clears throat> let's see. 
The Catholic Universe Bulletin, August, August 14th, 1942. The Roman Catholic Church changed the observance of the Sabbath to Sunday by right of the divine, infallible authority given to her by her founder, Jesus Christ. The Protestant, claiming the Bible to be the only guide of faith, has no warrant for observing Sunday. In this matter, the Seventh-day Adventist is the only consistent Protestant. Oh boy, here comes them pesky Adventists again. You know, people really hate them. Um, I see video after video calling them apostate, heretical, Mormon, Scientologist, um, all kinds of junk. But even even the Catholics, even the little horn power is sitting here telling us that they're the only true Protestant group. Why? Because the rest of us are all in the Pope's pocket and creating the image of the beast without realizing it. Um, now I'm not an Adventist, but I really like them. And like any church group, Satan has entered in and some of their churches have fallen. But the main body of them is strong, so I'd advise caution and casting judgment on them just based on what some YouTuber says. Because most of these YouTubers and, and people on TikTok and so forth, these are false teachers anyway. And that's the whole point of everything with this podcast. Get in your Bible and read it so you know when these people are lying to you or not. But um, what does Revelation say? The ones that get in are the ones that keep God's commandments and the testimony of Jesus which is the spirit of prophecy, right? That does apply to the Seventh-day Adventist movement that they do keep the uh, commandments as they're written and hold the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. So I don't know. For all of you that want to attack those people, I, I, would, I would warn against it. That's um, probably not a good idea. <clears throat> The Catholic Virginian, to tell you the truth, volume 22, number 49, October 3rd, 1947. All of us believe many things in regard to religion that we do not find in the Bible. For example, nowhere in the Bible do we find that Christ or the apostles ordered that the Sabbath be changed from Saturday to Sunday. We have the commandment of God given to Moses to keep holy the Sabbath day. That is the seventh day of the week, Saturday. Today, most Christians keep Sunday because it has been revealed to us by the church outside the Bible. Outside the Bible. They went outside of God's authority to say, okay, Saturday is not your Sabbath. It's Sunday. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Faith of Our Fathers by James Cardinal Gibbons, Archbishop of Baltimore, 88th edition, page 89 published 1876, you may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. Scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday, a day which we never sanctify. And then lastly on the quotes, we're going to end with a Rome's challenge. And for anybody interested in this, uh, this debate here, I highly recommend you Google Rome's Challenge and read it because it's a dandy. Most Christians assume that Sunday is the biblically approved day of worship. The Roman Catholic Church protests that it transferred Christian worship 
to the biblical or from the biblical Sabbath or Saturday to Sunday. And that to try to argue that the change was made in the Bible is both dishonest and a denial of Catholic authority. If Protestantism wants to base its teachings on the Bible only, sola scriptura, folks, it should worship on Saturday. Let me say that again. If Protestantism wants to base its teachings only on the Bible, it should worship on Saturday. Huh, isn't that fun? Even the enemy... You know, you wonder why, you wonder why they admit to all of this. I think there's two reasons. One, I, I think that God won't let them not admit to it, just so the truth is floating out of there in there from their mouth. So maybe some of us will see it. But more specifically, or maybe even more likely, they're proud of this. They're proud of this. The the Pope is saying that he is Christ on earth and he can change any laws that he wants. He is equal. There are some quotes that would suggest he is higher than Jesus. But bare minimum, they call him equal to Jesus and that he can change scripture. He can change all of this stuff. That's And they're, they're proud of it. They say, they keep saying this is their authority. The church has this authority. It has the authority. It has the authority. How, how does the church have authority? Christ has authority. How, how does the church have authority? But they say it over and over and over and over. It's their hubris. And the sad part about it is there are millions of people, and who, who knows, tens or hundreds of millions of people now and throughout history that have believed this junk. It's, it's unbelievable. But I don't know how much more plain it can be. He will change times and laws, and he has. The Sabbath is at the heart of all of this, brethren. It's at the heart of all of this. So why is a particular day so important to God? First, I would say that the created thing, which is us, has no right to judge the creator. Therefore, who am I to question what he wants? You know, that's just right off the rip. He told us to do it on Saturday. We don't need a reason. Just do it. You know, that's, that's it. He tells us to do it. We do it. But, I mean, you know, I get it. We don't. We don't do a lot of these things. But I'm just, in, in, the, in the grand scheme, there, I, we don't need an explanation. But, you know, for some people that are looking for one, we have one. Lucky for you, you came to the right place. Uh, but, you know, he is, he's our creator. And when he set this day up as a day of rest for us, um, he made it a day that we can worship him as the creator. And we can rest from our physical work. Um, and we can separate from this world. We can get out of worldliness. Finding our rest in him. Worshiping him is finding rest in him. Spiritually, right? So you can worship on any day. Let's let's get that straight. You, you can go to a church and have a service on Sunday. And that doesn't mean that you know, you're in some kind of trouble. But you can't forsake the rest day of Saturday and the worship that goes on on Saturday, that has to happen. You could go to a church service all seven days of the week. That's fine. But it's, it's, it's excluding Saturday that's the problem. You know that movie, My Cousin Vinny, great American classic, when Vinny comes in and... Uh, you know, the Stan, the buddy Stan is kind of worried about letting Vinny do it. And he goes into this speech saying, look, you know, a good defense attorney, it's not, it's not always what he says that matters. Sometimes it's what he doesn't say. 
Sometimes it's what he doesn't say, and that's where we are right now. Everybody wants to keep focusing on this. Well, you can worship on any other day part, but the thing that isn't being said is you need to rest and worship on this Saturday. You know, it. what's not being said is you can worship any day of the week you want, but you have to... You have to acknowledge, recognize, and participate in the Lord's Day, which is Sabbath. Thank you, John, in Revelation, for telling us that. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, the Sabbath. It's not his resurrection day. It's his rest day because Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. That is his day. And if you go to Hebrews 4, you will see had had Jesus made another day, we would have been told. It literally says that in there. It literally, and we're going to get, I think that's in our study somewhere, but it literally says if Jesus would have had another day, he would have told us. Go look at, I don't remember the exact verse, but uh, Hebrews 4. So, anyway, anyway. Um, But here is why, here's a look at why a specific day could also be coming into play. Because remember, he knows the beginning from end. He the end. He knows what's going to happen, and he knows about Satan's uh, lust for counterfeiting the things that he does. So let's take a look at Ezekiel uh, chapter 8, shall we? Ezekiel 8, 3, and Scripture says, And he put forth the form of a hand, and took me by a lock of mine head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven, and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looketh towards the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoketh to jealousy. So God is taking Ezekiel into vision. He's going to the temple and he is going to be seeing what kind of abominations are happening here, right? And so he sees this seat of the image of jealousy. So now you have to quickly recall that Ezekiel is a prophetic book. So we're dealing with the type and anti-type thing. And again, for the people who don't know, the type is the actual historical event or thing or whatever that existed, took place, what have you, in the Old Testament, the anti-type is the spiritual version of it where a prophecy uses that example so you understand the new thing that is coming down the road. Um, So the first thing we're going to look at here with this is the seat. And this is just like what we discussed in the Little Horn Power According to Paul episode. And um, I just kind of took the note from that and and added it here. So seat is the Strong's Greek 2515. The word is cathedros. It's where we get our modern word cathedral from. Now you think of that as the building, right? But you will see that the meaning of that is something else. So it's not the great big spires and all of this that you're looking at that cathedral actually means. And... But the etymology of the word, it flows, you know, to Latin, it's cathedra. Then when you get to late Latin, it's cathedralis. But then you take it to Middle English, it transforms wildly. Once you get to Middle English, it changes. In here, um, this word, cathedras, means the bishop's throne. Bishop's throne. So a bishop, right, is 
an overseer. That literally means overseer. And when you go you go into the New Testament, you'll see where Paul is giving, in, in, I believe in Titus and, and maybe in Timothy. Um, but there's a couple places where he's given rules to be a good overseer, which is a bishop. And um, the little horn power in Daniel, it had, when it popped up, it had two eyes. The two eyes represent overlooking, overseeing, and overseer. This is one of the proofs that we know that the little horn power is the papacy because an overseer is the bishop, right? And so, in other words, cathedra, cathedral is the raised throne of a bishop. So this leads us to the phrase holy see, also called the see of Rome, the Petrine see or the apostolic see. The word see comes from the Episcopal Latin word sedus, meaning seat, which refers to the Episcopal throne or cathedra. So we learn here the Holy See is the raised throne of the Pope to sit in judgment over the people as Moses. And we went further in that study to describe that. Moses sat in, uh, to judge in Exodus. And we see how the Pharisees were trying to do the same thing too. They were trying to sit in Moses' seat. So the seat here that he is seeing implies that there is a false shepherd, a false leader sitting on some kind of false throne here in this area, misguiding people, right? Um, so what about the image of jealousy that the seat is attached to? For this... And this is where I was saying we're going to on off. We're in the middle of Ezekiel eight, and now we're going to start bouncing into other places. And so this is where I'm going to try to do my best not to confuse. And I just ask that you try to to stick with us. But we're going to look at the image of jealousy, and for this we're going to go to Numbers five for a moment. Moment, and I'm not going to read it all, but in a nutshell. Um, these were some of the laws handed to Moses by God, the ceremonial type laws. But in a nutshell, if a wife cheats on her husband, God gave Moses instructions on what to do. So in Numbers 5.12, we read, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him, uh, and then it goes on to list the steps of a curse to be placed and an offering to be given with certain criteria met and so forth. But the only thing we needed out of that verse was, wife go aside and commit trespass against him. We just needed that unfaithful part. So now we jump down to Numbers 5.29. And scripture says, this is the law of jealousies. When a wife goeth aside to another instead of her husband and is defiled. Type and anti-type here, guys. So the wife in this, or bride, is a type, and the anti-type in the New Testament is the church, right? Um, I think many people are familiar with that. The wife or the bride, we are the bride of Christ. We are the church. So in this Numbers example, the church is going astray from her husband, which is Jesus. Um, 
So the going aside means to trespass or cheat or fornicate with another. So this image of jealousy is because the church is fornicating with other gods and being led by somebody who's a false apostle. That's what that seat is. There's a false leader there, and the image of jealousy is the fact that they are whoring around, so to speak, with other gods. Um, do, 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 do. And this is exactly what's going on with the little horn power in the Roman church system, of course. But So we move on. Uh, we see that Ezekiel's already talking about false worship and a false leader, so let's look at Ezekiel 8.5. Then he said unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now the way towards the north. So I lifted up my eyes the way towards the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar of this image of jealousy in the entryway. Now, I have been kicking this horse since this podcast started. And I hope, and I keep kicking it until people start absorbing this. But I hope you guys are catching on the north. The north and the tabernacle system. You come in the door from the east to your right or north is the table of showbread and the mount of congregation. This is where Satan wants his throne. So, this is, the north is the sides of the north that you will see uh, talked about in scripture. Many different places, it will refer to the sides of the north. Um, and so again, that's the Mount of Congregation and the Table of Showbread. Table of Showbread represents God's word. Mount of Congregation, obviously that means where the people come together with God, right? Um, and that's, Isaiah, Isaiah tells us exactly, that is where Satan wants his throne. That's where the counterfeit king of the north, the little horn power, the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness, the false apostle, sits today. He sits on the throne of Christ on earth. That is the sides of the north. That is the mount of congregation. That is the table of showbread. He is sitting over God's word, and we already see how he's changing God's word and God's law. Revelation, if you really read closely, uh, especially in the beginning, we start talking about seals and stuff. This it revolves strongly around the table of showbread, and you, our very first series will will explain that to you. Table of showbread, the word of God, and the defiling of the word of God is a major part of what's going on in Revelation. Um, so, um, let's see here. He's a false apostle. The, the Pope is a false apostle. In his cathedras, or his throne, or his seat of Moses, he has set up his throne over God's word. Um, again, it's the king of the north stuff. So, let's go to Ezekiel 8, 6. He said, furthermore unto me, son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far away from my sanctuary, but turn ye yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. Hold up. Hold up. They're doing greater abominations with the word of God. He's saying he's saying there's something worse. They're doing something worse than what they're already doing. Okay. Well, he says there's something worse, so we gotta read on and see what's worse. Ezekiel 8, 7, and he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Then he said unto me, son of man, dig now in the hole of the wall 
And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, go in and behold the wicked abominations they do here. First notice, he was at the furthest point of the temple complex in this vision. But now he's moving closer. He was at the door of the inner court, which means he was still on the outside. He was in the outer court. Now he's proceeded into the inner court. So the people he was previously seeing were non-believers. And as he was transitioning forward, he was getting believers that are led by a false shepherd, but they're just the congregation, if you will. They're just the people of Jerusalem. Um, So these are just followers. Now, in Ezekiel 8.10, So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things, the abominable beasts and idols of the house of Israel portrayed on the wall round about. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel, and in the midst of them stood Jezaniah and the son of uh, Shaphan, and with, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. So... As we're moving in closer, we went through just the normal congregation people. Now we're getting closer in. And by the ancients and the fact that they have censers in their hands, that tells us that these are priests now. It's not just the normal worshipers. These are the priests. And the censer, if you're not sure, is the incense burner that they carry around. The little thing that swings on the pot, you know, the pot that swings on the string there. And it's smoking. That's the incense burner. Um, the thick cloud of incense here would indicate false worship. And notice, too, the similarity to Rome with the idols being portrayed on the walls. Uh, and remember, we just talked about it. They eliminated the second commandment, which, which deals with idols, right? Well, that's what's going on here. They've got them on the walls. And they're, it's, it's kind of a hidden thing, but they, but they have those idols there. They're swinging in the smoke pots. It's exactly what the Romans are doing. Um so, Ezekiel 8.13, And he said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. What? There's, wor- There's still worse. Okay. So, Ezekiel 8.14, Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was towards the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz. Um, the gate of the Lord's house, he's moving closer. He's now on the brink of entering the holy place. He's on what would be called the porch or the colonnade, um, Solomon's porch. And remind me again, who is Tammuz? Oh yeah, that's Nimrod, who became the sun god and miraculously impregnated Semiramis, who then birthed Nimrod as a resurrected man, God. That's who Tammuz is. Tammuz is Nimrod who died, impregnated his wife, resurrected in her womb, came out, and was now called Tammuz. That's who they're worshiping. So that goes to show one, not making this stuff up, and neither are these mythologies and stuff. This Tammuz thing is real. It's real. Um... And this is the same Tammuz that the Roman system brought in with their Mithraism that we talked about earlier. 
It's looking more. This is looking more and more like the Roman system, isn't it? There's nothing new under the sun. Everything that he Ezekiel is seeing with the Jews in this vision of the temple, it looks a lot like the Roman system right now, right? Um, <clears throat> so, verse fifteen. Then he said unto me, "Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these." So it's still getting worse. It's st You have Tammuz, you have Nimrod. The spirit of Nimrod that the women are worshiping in God's temple. But something is still worse than this. Something's still worse. So he gets, verse 16, And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, between the porch and the altar, we're talking about the holy place here. There were about five and twenty men with their backs towards the temple and their faces towards the east, and they worshipped the sun towards the east. Say that again. And they worshipped the sun towards the east. It's sun worship, beloved. Sun worship. The greatest abomination that God showed Ezekiel is sun worship, and it's hidden in the church. Go back to everything that we've said about Nimrod, Mithraism, celebrating Sol Invictus, or the unconquered sun, having the Sabbath, as dictated in the fourth commandment, as being Saturday, moved to Sunday, or as Constantine puts it, the venerable day of the sun. Now, Nimrod was Satan's man, he had a one world everything, but failed. He somehow returns, or maybe his demon returns, whatever it is, or the general spirit of him does. Not exactly sure how it all works, but it's on your dollar bill. It's all Nimrod imagery. It's sun worship. And you guys might think that Nimrod just shows up as a name twice in your Bible. There is, there is a ton. It's one of the biggest studies that I have done on here with the notes is Nimrod. There is a ton of stuff on him. So, but it's all, this is all sun worship. Everything we're dealing with is sun worship. This is why we keep the Lord's Sabbath, because it's a marker that we are his. By moving the worship to Sunday, the Roman system fits all of this, and you end up back to where, um, choose this day who you will serve, the gods before the flood, but this house, we will serve the Lord, right? Either you serve Jesus on the Sabbath and you rest on the Sabbath the seventh day, Friday night to Saturday night, like he said, or you do like the people in Ezekiel's vision and you are now standing there with the idols all over the wall with your back to the temple looking east, worshiping the sun on Sunday. I don't know, don't know how much clearer it needs to be, folks. I don't. And I know people are still fighting me. I know there's people that are calling me a, a heretic, calling me a Mormon, calling me a Scientologist, calling me who knows what. Oh, you're no Christian. You're no Christian. And, and the sad part about it is you will listen to people 
who are intentionally trying to mislead you with false narratives and you don't know better because you don't read your scripture, or many of you don't aren't reading your scripture, which is your dividing line, it's your fence, it's your it's your defensive wall that helps you know that if somebody's standing on a stage trying to preach and lead you, if they're if they're off track or if they're not. And you just hear what these so-called experts saying because they might say Jesus, they say God or whatever, creator, that, oh, yeah, they're righteous, and you, and you hear them. But when there's somebody like myself that is trying to dislodge this lifetime worth of false teaching that's been in years, because you've, you've heard it so many times, it is truth to you. It's law to you now. You just you, you don't want to hear it. And when we show scripture of why whatever this is that you're holding on to is wrong, you just don't, don't want to hear it. You don't. And I'm just asking, I'm hoping that you guys are going to, you know, open your hearts up. As I prayed for that. You open your hearts up and be understanding this and try to realize what this scripture is telling you, right? Um, and, you know, I was resistant to this too at first. The scriptures told us uh, all we need to know. And I'll remind everybody of Revelation 14, the three angels' messages. They hold God's final warning message to his people. And this very much mirrors the 120 years that Noah was building that ark. The last message was sent to them, as is the days of Noah, folks. Jesus told us, as in the days of Noah, it's going to be like it was then. They were warned for 120 years. They didn't accept it. So let's look at the three angels real quick and see if we can fit that in to the end of this. I got 15 minutes for this uh, part of the episode. Revelation 14, 6. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Now where have we seen this language of nations, tongues, and people already? Revelation thirteen seven for one. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. And to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. This is the beast from the sea, the little horn power. Revelation seventeen fifteen also. And he saith unto me, The waters, or sea, which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, cathedras, seat, sit, throne of the bishops, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So now obviously the gospel is for everybody, but the angel seems to be showing us an illusion here um, to Rev Revelation 13 and 17, where the horse sitteth. And I just mentioned the part about the seat. So in other words, the raised bishop's throne, the angel is warning those who are in league with the papacy. Those of us that are in league or under the sway of the papacy is who's... He, this this verse is not talking about unsaved people. This is talking about saved people who think they're bulletproof. They think they're in this uh, righteous system, and they're not. This is what the three angels are trying to say. This is what all this prophecy is trying to say. We're being lied to. You're in the wrong camp. So make no mistake, you can verbally deny the Roman system all you want. Oh, we're not Catholics. We we hate what they do. We love them, but we hate what they do. But if you engage in its practices, you're still under its sway. 
And Sunday worship is one of those things. That's the image of the beast. Worshiping on Sunday is the biggest part of the image of the beast. That's what they're working to do, is change Sabbath to Sunday. And you're doing this while saying, oh, no, we're Protestants. We don't have anything to do with it. We don't, we don't pray to Mary or anything, so we, you know, we're, we're the right ones. They're the wrong ones. No, you're in their pocket still. And these are where the three, we're the ones, the people in these Protestant churches are the ones the three angels are coming after. Well, I am the Catholic Church, but it's not the unbelievers that they're, they're warning to. It's the people that claim Jesus Christ is who they're coming for and trying to warn. And that's why that language is in there. Um, verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Now this is an immediate callback to Exodus 20, the fourth commandment. And Exodus 20, verse 11, Scripture says, For in the days uh, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The same language. Worship him that made heaven and earth and sea. And then when you go to Exodus, the verse of the fourth commandment, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth and sea. It's a callback to the fourth commandment. This is how you read scripture. This is how you understand scripture. You look for the callbacks. When something is worded a certain way, where else is it worded that way? Go find it. And that's how it helps you understand what the verse is talking about, right? I mean, sometimes the things they're talking about is obvious, but sometimes they're not. So that's how you do it. You, you find these callbacks and you go back and look, where was it used in the Old Testament? And what, what was going on? What did that mean then? Um... <clears throat> So you can ignore this Sabbath warning at your own peril, folks. That's all I can tell you. Verse 8, And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now this takes us to Isaiah 21, um, which talks about this. And it says, you know, the burden of the desert of the sea is whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it cometh from the desert from a terrible land. A grievous vision is declared unto me, the treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, and the soil spoiler spoileth. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media, all the sighting thereof I have made to cease. So Isaiah here is being given a vision that's referring to Babylon, the burden of the desert of the sea. The de this is Babylon, uh, and we know this because later it says Babylon. But when we see Elam and Media being sent, Elam is modern day Iran or Persia. So we have here the Medo Persian Empire being engaged, and as you'll recall from Daniel two and the metallic man statue, they are the ones that topple Babylon. So we're seeing it right here. For thus the Lord God said unto me, Go set a watchman, let him declare what he seeth. So when Babylon's going to fall, there was somebody warning, warning, warning. Set a watchman can go a lot of ways. But the three angels' message here are acting as a watchman. Those who proclaim their message are watchmen. And every believer who diligently studies scripture is a watchman. There are voices today sounding the alarm against Babylon. 
which is our apostate Protestantism and the Roman system coming together as one. It's all Babylon. Um, and there are people that are moved by God to be doing this. Anchor yourself in Scripture, and you will know how to recognize them and know how uh, know that you should listen to them. Now, verse 7, he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses and a chariot of camels, and he hearkened diligently with much heed. Now, these particular animals were both used by the Medes and the Persians in military campaigns. But what's more interesting is that it's two chariots. And so there's a secular account of our friend Samaramus, wife of Nimrod, mother of Tammuz, uh, the queen of heaven, Astarte, or who uh, you will find in the Roman system being called the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, Semiramis. This account, Propertius, <laughs> some of these names, um, 50 BC from the Elegies, Volume 3, um, Semiramis established Babylon, the Persian city, in such wise that it rose solid mass, so I'm assuming that's a solid mass with a wall of brick, and two chariots might be sent to meet each other, nor graze their sides with touching axles. And through the midst of the citadel which she founded, she led Euphrates and bade back to bow its head and her sway. So you have the, the two chariots thing here um, leading into Babylon, which is kind of interesting, whatever. But what's really interesting when I found that and with the two chariots is what made me look at it with this. This isn't really important for the study, but I can't help myself. This is what I do. Um, but uh, when you look at the King of the North study and understand how Cyrus, the type of Jesus comes, takes Babylon, whatever, um, it's by blocking off the river Euphrates that Cyrus is able to sneak into Babylon undetected. And it's how God's people were able to travel back to Jerusalem after Cyrus released them. Uh, she had she had diked or dammed or whatever, welled this up so it was so deep and made it made the river itself a protective barrier. And Cyrus comes in and lowers the water so his army can get across. So he dams it off completely so they can get through. And you will recognize this in your YouTube heresies that are flying all over the place regarding prophecy when they are saying, oh, the Euphrates River has dried up. The, you know, that means, that means the end time's coming, red heifers and, and all of this stupidity. The, the actual river drying up is not a prophetic event. It's type and anti-type. So when Jesus, a type of Cyrus, comes to Babylon in order to take Babylon, he dries up the river in a section to get his army through conquers Babylon, and then releases God's children, God's chosen people, that they could go back to Jerusalem. So when it says in Revelation that he, or that the river Euphrates will be dried up so it will clear the way for the kings of the east, this is spiritual. Jesus now is the Cyrus role. He is, by his salvation to us and his returning, he is drying up the river and the saints are now we are grafted in we are spiritual jews 
we are the kings of the east. The kings of the east referred to the Jews going back to Jerusalem. So here we are spiritual Jews. We are the king of the east. When Jesus returns, that is the Euphrates River drying up. It's not literal. But I just thought that was interesting and add in here. It has nothing to do with our study. Sorry, guys. That's just that's the way I do things. Um, and he cried, a lion, my lord. And I stood continually upon my watchtower in the day, and I am set in my ward whole nights. Cried a lion is a tough one, but a lion um, here is not the words that he didn't say. He didn't say, hey, a lion, I see a lion. It's believed that he called out in warning as if it was a roar like a lion. A lion, and a lion's roar can be heard up to five miles away and is used to signal other lions. He's a watchman, so his call out was like, you know, a lion's roar. It was loud. It it was ferocious. It was instant, right? So I think that's what was going on there. But we get to verse nine, and behold, here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the graven images of her gods have been broken under the ground. So the three angels are telling us Babylon has fallen. Isaiah is telling us Babylon has fallen. But the whole point is there are watchmen set up in all of this. That's the whole point of bringing Isaiah in. There are people here telling us, and we need to be listening. When people are, are preaching this message, we have to pay attention. Um, verse 9, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the, the beast in his image and receive a mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. So what is without mixture part? Well, as everybody knows, we have an intercessor in Jesus. He's our defense attorney, if you will, who pleads our case in the heavenly court. And according to the 2300-day prophecy in Daniel, this is happening right now. This judgment is happening. This is judgment time. And... That study is coming, but at some point, our intercessor stops. There's a cutoff point, just like in the days of Noah. When that door was shut on the, on the ark, the investigative judgment was over. And those who cho chose God were inside. Those who did not choose God were on the outside. And notice, Noah's not the one that closed the door. God was. God was. Now, let's look at... Daniel 12, 1, and at that time, Michael shall stand up the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, every one of them found written in the book. We've been through this, but Michael, he who is like God, is the angel of the Lord, a.k.a. Jesus. He stands up. A basic study of this word means what you think it means, but a deep dive reveals that it means, the standing up part, it means to cease one's duty or work. So when Michael, Jesus, when he stands up, he ceases pleading our case. That is what this is. He is ceasing to do this. Why? Because the probation time has closed. The ark in modern day is shut. It's over. Because those who are written in the book are already saved. It's over. 
That's how we know judgment is not later for us. It's already happening right now. The judgment's happening now. And when he returns, judgment has, is ended. Our high priest has destroyed the record of our sin in the most holy. That's what he's doing up there. That's why you look at the tabernacle system. And all that's left now is to send the scapegoat away with the guilt of those sins, which um, is how the sanctuary system shows us it's done. And I'm not going to have time to do it. Leviticus 16, 7 through 10. We're going to have to bring this to the next episode uh, because this is already closing my hour. So this will end episode 6, part A. I'm going to just hit record immediately and keep rolling. So the prayer from this one re. You know, reverts back to the second episode. Sorry, Troy, once again. Um, I know you want it fresh every time, but uh, time is valuable, and it's really one episode anyway. So that's how we're doing it. Thanks, guys. Talk to you in a few minutes.